turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, we are continuing our, our journey through the life of David. And we are at the part of his story that uh, uh, probably we're less familiar with. Um, it is a sad part of his story, of course. And what we're really seeing is the downfall of the kingdom of David following his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. And uh, what happens here is uh, rare in human history, as we'll see, but uh, difficult. So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, page 287 of your pew Bibles. If you will, stand with me and reverence for God's word. We'll read, Lord willing, the full chapter. The writer of 2 Samuel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and fifty men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would, would call to him and say, For what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. When a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of forty years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And two hundred men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gelo, while he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword." And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all of his household with him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Carathites, all the Pelathites, all the Gittites, six hundred men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. The king said to Ittai, the, the, Git, the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday. Shall I t today make you wander with us? Will I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now behold, Zadok also came, 
and all the Levites with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they sat down the Ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, Return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Your son Ahamaz, shall I say that? You're welcome, baby girl. And Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I am going, too much candy. Um, See, I am going to wait at the forge of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned to the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. His head was covered and, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. It happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped that, behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, the two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, there you go, baby girl, Zadok's son and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friends, came to the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, we ask, as always, when we gather to open up your word, to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience, transformed by the power of Christ. This is a text we are not familiar with. There is much here for us to grasp. May we not become like David, but like the son of David. And may I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May we see him. Many moons ago, before we, we lived in Frankfurt, uh, we lived in a small town and, and everything shut down except for the local Walmart, which was a glorified a dollar store, if I'm being honest with you. But everything shut down after four or five o'clock, whatever it is. And I was out and about one day and I thought I would be one of those sweet husbands like I usually am. And I thought, you know, I've not gotten my wife uh, some any flowers lately. I should really go get her some sweet flowers and and then, you know, you got to build up the uh, bonus points, the brownie points, so that when you do something really dumb, you know, it doesn't, the damage isn't too bad. So I thought, well, Walmart's open. I'll go get her some flowers there. Well, they don't have live flowers, so I go, well, I'll just get her fake flowers. A flower's a flower. I've always been told that women don't care about the gift, they care about the thought, right, which is a lie. But that's what I've been told, Okay. So I go and got me some flyers. I, I brought the flyers home. I said, look, honey, I got you flyers. In the back of my mind, I thought, I got you flyers, and I saved a lot of money. These flyers were cheap, right? I'm not going to tell her that. I'll tell her father that, but I'm not going to tell her that, okay? And she looks at them, and she just stares at me, and she is aghast at what I've done. 
Well, what are you trying to tell me here with these sort of flowers? Like, what do you mean what I'm trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you I love you. I was thinking about you. I care for you. And, and I'm sorry for whatever it is you think I did. That's what I'm trying to say. He goes, don't you see what you've gotten me? Like, I got you flowers. Look, I've been told all my life, and you've told me, you don't care about what the flowers are, what the, what the brand is, or what it smells like. You just care about the flowers. She said, well, these flowers, these fake flowers, are designed for grave sites. The reason they were so cheap is, is they, they had the little pointy things, you know, go in the ground. And, and they had a decorative green stuff on the back, right? So instead of like a stem and a flyer, it was more to it. Now, I can't describe it beyond that. It's the best I can do because that's why they were cheaper, right? They weren't on sale, right? They weren't on clearance. Clarence wasn't there working. And, and so, so I go to do a really nice thing for my bride. And, and it isn't just her reaction. What I thought wasn't overreaction to quote the great theologian and scientist as a John not John Newton but Sir Isaac Newton that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction well I've learned with working with people for every action there is an equal and opposite overreaction wouldn't you agree right so you be careful what flyers you pick apparently that does in fact matter I learned the hard way one of the great tests of a person is not merely their actions, though that is certainly it. We've seen that with David, the actions he takes, the words he uses, the decisions he makes, but also how we react to the circumstances brought before us. How do you and I respond when we are wounded, hurt, attacked, or betrayed? Do we fight? Do we yell? Do we claw? Do we sue? Do we seek revenge? Do we post nasty things online? Do we try to tear someone down? How do we react in such circumstances? How did David react to his circumstances? We watch him as he, as he faced down his father-in-law in 1 Samuel. And now we must observe how he faces down his own son. What we have here starting in chapter 15 is the, is the beginning of a new narrative that goes all the way through chapter 19. And this is really how it breaks down. It all starts with the R sound, even war, which is close enough to the R sound. I went to public school in Owen County. Work with me here, people. And so you know that this must be true because it is alliterated. What we see here is the rebellion of, of Absalom and, of course, David running from that. We won't get to all of it here uh, this morning. The war it, it commences from that, the civil war within Israel between Absalom and David. And then eventually we see David returning and uh, the, the, the revolt that happens there at the very end. So let's start here with the rebellion in verses 1 through 12. In order to, to understand David's reactions, we have to understand the actions of Absalom. And this is the act of rebellion, yeah, but it's really an act of betrayal. Now, two, this breaks down to two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 6, is Absalom's deception. And what you have here is Absalom in his just glory, right? He does so well at playing the political game. Notice, first of all, his possessions, right? He needs to give the impression not just that he will be king, but that he is ready to be king now. Notice his possessions. Verse 1, he goes out and buys himself a chariot. What does the prince need with a chariot? Chariots is what kings ride in. 
Chariots require not just the horses and the chariot itself, but also you need the military men, one to shoot, one to drive, all of that sort of stuff. So it isn't just he went out and got him a new car. He got him an entire new system that was reserved for great generals who go into battle and kings who lead the army. So clearly he is trying to make himself look more than a prince, but one who is king. And the goal is for him to look, what's the word? presidential. Ever, ever watch a presidential debate and, the, and it all comes down to which of these two men looked more presidential? And you think, which one of, of you or which one of us should really care about that sort of thing, right? You know, you can look presidential and be a terrible president, but what do I know? Uh, I went to public school in a rural community. The second thing you'll notice he does is he, he works to be personable. Notice what he does there in verse 2. Athlan used to rise early, stand beside the way to the gate. The gates were all the civic and uh, economic things happened in every ancient city. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, he would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from this or that tribe of Israel. You see what he's doing there? He is personable. This is the charm of a politician. He gets up early and makes his regular campaign stops. He, he goes around, he shakes hands, he kisses babies, he, he does it all, right? And he, he, he talks to every individual. He makes sure he, he learns their names and he hears their stories. He cries with them. He kisses their babies. He does everything that any politician would do because he's engaging them. He is personable. Not only that, but he panders to the crowd in this act of deception. Look, notice what he does, verse 3. Absalom would say to, to this man who would come to him, he's, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, he would say, Oh, that one was appointed to to be judged like me. Oh, I tell you, you've got such a good case, but that current administration, they're just incompetent. They are wrong. And, and, and I, I bring you justice, but my hands are tied. My hands are tied. I don't know much about campaigning, but I would think it, was, it would be easier to run against an incompetent than, than to be the incompetent. Why? Because you can blame all the world's problems on the person you're running against. And that's basically what you got here. He's pandering to the crowd. Oh, I just, I, what's the old quote from uh, President Clinton? I feel your pain. Isn't that what he's saying there, right? I tell you, if I were president or if I were governor or mayor or dog catcher, I assure you, things wouldn't be like this. Oh, if you would just vote for me come November. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Notice here, he looks like a king. He's personal like the king, and now he's given the impression he would rule with sympathy. With David, you got war after war after war, not with your boy Absalom. He's going to be sympathetic and kind. He is a man down with the people, not up on his throne. Notice then he will perform. He, he performs in verses 5 and 6. When a man came near to prostrate himself, what would he do? He'd say, oh, just, just, we'll, we'll just shake hands, buddy. I, I, just come, just hang out with the boys, right? He wanted to be like a normal guy. You, you know, I'm willing to bet that, that you've, 
you've maybe watched presidential politics and you've noticed they all have this random pair of bib overalls and muddy boots that they only wear to the Iowa State Fair. Have you noticed that, right? They, they only wear them one time every four years and it's when they're about to run to be president, right? Every politician does this. The goal is, is to be one of the guys, right? Many of you all know I work over at the Capitol with, with a ministry there. And one of the things that has been really enlightening me is, is I think we would do well to discover how much of politics is theater, especially when the cameras are on, right? And that's what he's doing here, right? Think about it. Every press conference is theater. Every fundraising email is theater. Every speech, every campaign spot, every public appearance is theater. And that's what Absalom is doing here. Now, this leads... He has his deception in the first six verses. This leads to Absalom's declaration of war in verses 7 uh, to, to, to 10. And notice in verse 7 to 11, for sake of time, uh, we, we won't look into detail, but this is the last recorded conversation in the Bible between Absalom and David. Now, maybe they met in real life. Uh, again, I don't know, but in the Bible, the last recorded message, notice there verse verse 10 um, Absalom has lied to him, saying, we're going to go to Hebron to do all this sort of stuff. There's a lot going on there, but verse 10, Absalom sent spies throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. That's the declaration of war. That's the declaration. So, so you'll notice here, he, he, he goes, he tells his father, when I was out in Geshur, maybe he's out there for years, he's been back in Jerusalem for several more years. He says, oh, I just remembered I made a vow to God. Dad, wink, wink, and I have to go to Hebron to make these sacrifices. And David goes along with it. He never asks any questions. Well, why is it taking you so long to remember that vow you made to the Lord? Right? He didn't ask any questions like that. All he says is go in peace. He offers him shalom. But Absalom will soon return, not looking for peace. He's looking for Jerusalem. He's looking for the city of peace. And that will come by war. Hebron is an important place because Hebron is where David was first crowned king. Because Hebron was the first capital of Israel. Remember, David made Jerusalem the capital. Jerusalem was not the original capital. Hebron was. And these sacrifices he makes are the same sacrifices we see that Saul made in 1 Samuel 11 when he was crowned king. Later, Adonijah in, in 1 Kings will make the same sort of sacrifices. So what he's doing is he is going through the motions to declare himself king. And in the sound, when the trumpet sounds, the entire kingdom will suddenly declare Absalom is king. Now, many people don't know what's going on, but they all know he's the heir. And so if Absalom been declared king, I guess he's king. He looks the part. He acts the part. He talks the part. Now it has been declared the part is his. So by the time you get to the end here in verse 12, David's reign is being diminished and Absalom's popularity is through the roof. Who would have thought that David's greatest threat was his own son? You know what sticks out to me here, and you all know my love of, of history, is that I cannot think, and I did a bit of a Googling thing and I couldn't find much, but I cannot think of many examples, really any, where the king's throne is taken from him by his own heir. 
You think about it, if, if you want to be king, you want to be given the throne peaceably, not with war. Because if you do it through war, you're always going to be viewed as the one, not who has the right to the throne, but took it for himself. But if you inherit the throne, then you get the, the rightful act of kings, right? It's providential that, that the Lord wanted you to be our king. Absalom bypasses that. He's impatient here. He hates his father to the point he would rather see his father ex- expelled and exiled or even dead. And he go ahead and take the throne for himself. This is a unique sort of situation historically. Well, that's the revolt from Absalom. Let's look at David on the run, verses, 15, verses 13, going into chapter 16, but we'll cross that bridge a little really next week. Absalom now has a growing army, a growing band of loyal followers, and he is marching to Jerusalem. What should David do? His answer almost immediately is he chooses to flee. In verses 13 to 15, a messenger comes to David and informs him about what is happening. He flees knowing that he is about to be surrounded by Absalom's army. And the fight for his throne, he believes, is not this day yet. He will, if the Lord allows, return. Now what is interesting about this is this is sort of a repeat of the Saul narrative. You remember that under Saul... David was pushed out. You remember, David was part of the king's household, Saul's household. He married into Saul's family with his daughter, the princess. And and he was forced out of the palace into exile while he works to take his throne. Now, under Absalom, someone in the king's household again, he is cast out of the palace. He is sent into exile where David will again have to work to take back his throne. And what you ultimately see here is David is embodying the biblical narrative of Eden. That is one of, of paradise, of exile, and return. That is the biblical narrative, right? We start in paradise. We are sent into exile. And then Christ draws us back into uh, the kingdom, right? That is the biblical story in, in, in a nutshell. So if you read the Bible, there's all these stories of exile. Joseph into Egypt, right? The Israelites into Egypt and then into wilderness, right? This is the story you see over and over again. Well, you'll see there in verse 16 and 17, David takes everything with him, but he leaves behind 10 concubines to keep the house. Uh, we'll see what happens to them next week. It is not a good thing. Verse, and then what we see for the rest of the chapter is a series of encounters David has as he flees Jerusalem. And in chapter 15, we see the positive encounters. In chapter 16, we will see the more negative encounters. But it is here we get insight into how David reacted to his son's actions. Let's start here. David found encouragement in a faithful friend. He found encouragement in a faithful friend. Now, you'll notice there, verses 18 to 23, we're introduced to a lot of people we don't really know a whole lot about, right? And so um, you'll notice there, verse 18, his servants passed. Uh, these are the Carathites, the Pelathites, and the Gittites, 600 men who came from Gath, right? Remember that David went to Gath in his own exile before he came, and they came with him. He was his own band of, of, of followers, uh, and then we meet, in particular, Ittai, the Gittai. And we know nothing about Ittai up to this point. He'll come back later in the narrative. But what we discover is that Ittai has been with the king for a whole day, 
Right. So he and you know, you know how it works. Right. He, he goes in, he interviews for the job. He, he, he tells all of his friends, man, this is a great place to work within 24 hours of being on the job. Uh, he's running away. Right. I mean, that that is not a good way to start a new job. I, 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 I wouldn't think so. Right. But this this is it. Right. But David runs into him and, and he sees the entire is following David. They're like, what are you doing? Go back. You, you've, you've been on the job for a whole day. Go. Notice there, uh, it says in verse 18 to 20, go and serve your king. Notice, this, David is saying this. He's already describing his son as the new king of Israel. It's amazing language there. Go and serve your king. After all, Ittai is, is an exile himself. He, and, and he knows that that. What you don't want is to be in exile with me. I can't make you any promises. What I, what I can say, it's going to be dangerous, and we might not survive. However, verses 21 to 23, Ittai remains loyal to David. He takes a double oath there, as the Lord lives and as my king lives. Um, so he takes this oath, and the oath is that all of his men under him and even his family will follow David wherever the Lord may take him. It's striking, isn't it, that the exile foreigner is more loyal to the anointed king of Israel than the anointed king's own son. It's striking, isn't it? I don't know about you, but in my experience, I find it's the people you love the most often hurt us the worst. The people who seem to owe us nothing often give us more than, than, than we would expect. Ittai is certainly numbered among, among such people. We've talked about this in, in recent months, so I don't want to belabor the point, but friends prove themselves in moments of crisis and need. Remember we did our study on Proverbs. We read Proverbs 18.24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And sometimes that friend is not someone who is in exile himself. What's the old story? I may get it wrong. The, the man who was at the bottom of the pit, one guy comes and he says, will you help me out? He says, well, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't have a rope with me. Another man comes and, and, he's, and he says, help me out. He says, I don't have a ladder with me. A third man comes and says, help me get out of this pit. And he jumps into the pit. He says, why did you do that? And now we're both stuck. He says, you don't understand. I've been in this pit before. I know the way out. Ittai here is the man in the pit. He himself is in exile. And when David encourages him graciously, go be loyal to the new king. Save your life and things are, are new to you. You'll be fine. Ittai says, no, I know what it's like as an exile to be in exile. I will stick with you. One of the things I have found is that in moments of hardships, we are tempted to be drawn into isolation. We struggle with trusting people around us. They don't know what we're going through. We don't know how life our, dif our, our, our difficult our life is. They, 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 they can't sympathize us. They're not going to help us. I feel betrayed by one person. How, how will I not be betrayed by everyone else? And we're tempted to, to choose loneliness and isolation, thinking somehow we can get through the fog. But what we see actually is in those moments of need is when we need one another the most. I pray let it be that we can confess that in our great times of need, we knew there was an entire congregation of gospel-believing, Bible-proclaiming, Jesus-worshiping believers who were like Ittai to you and me. We were there for one another. 
Secondly, notice David remained anchored in his faith. He remained anchored in his faith. Verses 24, 29, we've got to move quickly. The priests show up. There's two of them here, Abiathar and Zadok. I will not try to repronounce Abiathar's son. But nevertheless, they show up. And what they've done is they have removed the Ark of the Covenant. Right? And, and they're priests. They can do this. Israel's learned their lesson. They're not going to do it the wrong way. They're going to do it the right way. And they've, they've brought it with David and say that David is the true king. He's the one anointed with Israel. Where he goes, God's presence will go with him. Now, it's a good sentiment, right? But, but David responds differently, right? He, he, he says, no, 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 no. What I don't need is a relic of God's presence. What I need is God's presence, period. I'm not going to move furniture. No, 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 no. I, we've learned our lesson. What I don't want is God's furniture. What I want is God's favor. And so he tells the priest to return the Ark of the Covenant. After all, he rests in the promises of God that your throne will remain forever. It is an eternal throne under the the Davidic covenant that God has given him. Um, And so David concludes that if it be the Lord's will for him to return, he shall return. But if it be the Lord's will for him to remain in exile, he will remain in exile. His joy and his identity is not defined by where he lives or leads or anything, but rather it is where the Lord has me, I will find the Lord there. He remains anchored in his faith. Now, this is not fatalism. This is leaning into the providential grace of God. I find again that in moments of sorrow and difficulty, in moments of hardship and betrayal, the temptation is for us in America to run from God because we think God owes us comfort and security. And if since that's been robbed from us, I guess God doesn't love us. When rather historically we understand that it is in those moments of doubt, in those moments of frustration, in those moments of, of hardship, it is in those moments we must run to God the most. Think about it. When you're a little child and you fell off your bike onto the gravel because we raised men back then and you were skinned all the way up throughout your body, you thought you were going to die. Did you run from your mother or to her? So to it in your moment of great need, be like David here and and be anchored in your faith. Thirdly, David trusted in the providential care of God. David's list of friends and supporters are shrinking by the minute. And he had to send two of them, the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, back to Jerusalem. No wonder, verse 30, David climbs the Mount of Olives to weep. To weep. Do you love it how, how, how David is at the point of just, he's wounded. It, it's, not that, it's not that Moab has invaded. It's not that Egypt is, has returned to fight with a larger army. It's that his son wants him to die. His son hates him. Well, that's, that's, that's a deep wound he has. And this source, one major source of sadness is often this feeling of abandonment. And not only has Absalom rebelled, but we see in verse 31, his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, has joined Absalom in the conspiracy. Now, Ahithophel, you might notice, you might, you might need to note, is Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And scholars wonder, is his motivation revenge? He's been holding on to this for all these years. 
And so here he, he's been betrayed by his son, been betrayed by his chief of staff. Nevertheless, David prays to the Lord and he prays, God, let his counsel, which has been so wise for me, be foolish towards Absalom. And in verses 32, God answers that prayer immediately. Notice, it happened as David was coming to the summit, right? He's going up to weep and he is praying. Where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. You see, God's already answering his prayers. What David does is he comes up with his brilliant plan. He is going to use Hushai as his secret spy. Now, if you've ever studied war, you need to know, if you're going to win a war, you've got to win the, the, the war of deception. And if you want a good example of this, George Washington had what was called the Culper Spy Ring. Yeah, you ought to look into that. It's fascinating stuff. Um, he would use these secret codes that only he and the other people knew. And, and uh, we, we still to this day study George Washington and, and the spying uh, for modern warfare, like how to deceive, right? It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, you, can, you can look that up. Don't Google it. Buy an actual book. You remember what those were like? Uh, they're, they're at these little storage houses called libraries. I'd recommend it to you. There's entire books on the subject. So what Hushai's job is to essentially contradict everything, Ahithophel uh, tells Absalom and to create chaos. We'll see this more next week, that, that, uh, that Hushai gives terrible advice that Absalom takes because Absalom chooses to hear what he wants to hear rather than what Ahithophel tells him, which is what he needs to hear. We'll cross that bridge, Lord willing, next week. So what David has in Jerusalem is Hushai the spy, two priests who through their sons will create an information highway, aspiring, if you will, for David. What we need to see here is that, is that David trusts that God will provide, that God will care for him. Maybe it won't always be comfortable, won't always be easy, but that God is working things towards his glory. Life with faith allows us to address the past by finding assurance in, uh, uh, assurance in our past. You see how God showed up in the past? And it allows us to have hope for the future. So when we are anchored in the assurance that God has shown us in the past, the hope we have for the, for the future, we have nothing to fear in the present. David has gone through this process once before. He has gone into exile. He's been betrayed by people he loved him, including his first wife, Saul's daughter. Remember what she did in 1 Samuel. He says, I've been through this show before, so I know that God's providential care will be over me. It was over me when I was king and the economy was booming. Everyone feared me and we were at peace. God is with me when I'm at the top of Mount of Olives and tears are flowing from my eyes. God is still with me. If it's true of my past and I have hope for my future, I have nothing to fear in my presence. The fourth thing worth mentioning here is that David hoped in Christ. Can I show you this? Uh, turn to Psalm 3 real quickly. Carrie read Psalm 1, which is a great introduction to, to this, but um, Psalm 3 um, is a psalm written by David. Now, I don't know if you do this or not. I'm a footnote guy. Ignore me. So if you read uh, the book on our history of our church, I spent a lot of time on those footnotes, so indulge me a little bit. But I'm a footnote guy, which means in the Psalms, you don't have footnotes, which you have are subscripts. 
In Psalm 3, notice this, the subscript here right at the beginning. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We don't have time to go into all the detail here. But I want you to notice this. David confesses he is surrounded by his enemies. Everyone, it seems, has abandoned him. Notice there, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. But you'll notice he turns to the God of his salvation amid his distress. Verse 3, the Lord is my shield. Verse 4, the Lord hears his cry. Verse 5, the Lord sustains him. Verse 6, he therefore has nothing to fear. Verse 7 and 8, his hope is in the God of salvation. There it is, verse 8. Salvation belongs to to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, the same people who just sent him out the door. Is at the end of the day, my identity is not that I am king, not that I am wealthy, not that I have a large family, not that people love me, but that I am his. His reaction is one faith. He hoped in Christ. How we react to adversity, betrayal, heartache, disappointment, and hurt reflects one's true character. Do we, not just in our actions, but in our reactions, do we reflect Christ? I'm sure part of the story may sound like you've read it before. Can you think of a son of David who himself crossed the Kidron Valley, walked up the Mount of Olives, and cried in prayer? Isn't that the story of the son of David? But unlike David, Christ has no one with him. His own friends betray him. They run away. He is handed over, not by his son but by a disciple. And he must march through the process of his own execution alone. And how did Christ react to his dark day? Not with violence, but with prayer. Not with anger, but with love. Not with bitterness, but with forgiveness. And not with weakness, but the power to conquer death. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. What is yours in your dark days? What is yours when life gets difficult? Do we look like not just David, but the son of David? who because God led him to the cross and he submitted to the will of God and suffered under such terrible travails, you and I are here right now. So we can sing with David salvation in good days and bad belong to the Lord and I am his. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind.